0: Welcome back to TransAsia and the World. Today on the pod we have Professor Veeran Murthy of the University of Wisconsin-Madison on Skype from Beijing. So hello, Professor. Hello. Uh, so um, today we're going to be talking about what exactly it means to study transnational history from a variety of perspectives um, over the first few episodes. Um, and Professor Murthy is primarily an intellectual historian, so I am sure he's going to have a lot of interesting things to say on that front. So uh, just as an opening volley professor, could you tell us how you came to study what it is that you study?
1: Um, so I guess then you're asking um, how I came to study intellectual history. Yes. And uh, of course, that's a very long story, and, but I will uh, try to make it as brief as possible. I guess I should start with saying that I was a philosophy major as an undergrad. And I began to do a a PhD in philosophy at the University of Hawaii. And um, I was sort of interested in comparing, you know, an Asian philosopher, you know, like Lao Tzu or Confucius or something, and then comparing this philosopher to a Western philosopher and, uh, you know, such as Heidegger or something like that. And, but as time went on, you know, there were things that were changing in China. I began to, you know, there was June 4th and so on, the uh, Tiananmen social movement and so on. And I began to become interested in trying to see the links between, say, philosophical ideas and uh, political practice. And I proposed a, a dissertation on the compatibility between Confucianism and democracy. Um, So that was like one of my first, uh, you know, and that was, but this is still in the philosophy department. And as I began to work on that project, um, I began to say, well, it's very difficult to grasp an idea such as democracy outside of its its historical context. So, and I think this is here uh, a fundamental distinction between the way philosophy looks at ideas and theories and the way something like intellectual history would look at um, ideas and theories. That is, in philosophy, um, there is a almost a, a fundamental stance of decontextualization. So what you do is you take a person's idea, such as, um, you know, Confucius, mm-hmm. and you can say ritual, and so on, and all these various ideas, community, or whatever, and <laughs> and then you are sort of comfortable comparing that, you know, with any other philosopher throughout history as if they lived in the same time, as if yeah. time didn't matter, right? So that you can say, you can say, take, well, you know, so that's how even the very question that I was asking in, in, the, in, in, the, in a philosophy department, you know, is are Confucianism and democracy compatible or is Confucian democracy compatible? Mm-hmm, almost mm-hmm. assumes, it already assumes that a concept like democracy would even make sense to Confucius. And I think that uh, that's when I began to think, well, maybe I need to look at this historically. Um, And so then I began to, and that's where I began to shift to intellectual history, just try to look at, you know, if we're talking about a concept such as democracy or even other concepts, you know, even epistemological concepts such as subject or object, you know, that they might have historical conditions of possibility. So such that it's only in the modern period that all of a sudden, It becomes it makes sense to talk about something like democracy, and then you can still talk about Confucianism and democracy, but you have to take into account the way in which something like Confucianism is radically changed by the late Qing, by the 20th century, or something like that, or even you know, and so on.
0: Didn't you eventually change schools? Yes, I did. I
1: went from University of Hawaii to University of Chicago. Um, and that's partly because I was um, one of the people who uh, helped me think through some of this is um, my former advisor, Prasenjit Dwara, who was one of the people who said, well, of course, we used to a mm. history department. He said, you know, it makes no sense to compare <coughs> Confucianism and democracy because, you know, they're, they're, they're completely different time periods.
0: So then... Um I guess in your current scholarship, what's the most important thing that intellectual historians can work on? Not necessarily on a specific dissertation, but sort of broadly speaking, what are the like sort of key questions for intellectual historians?
1: Well, I think it's hard to narrow down because you can do intellectual history of any period. You know, I work on the modern period. So then there are certain issues that will be central to, to what I do. I mean, issues around the concept of modernity itself, right? So that one of the things that I've been interested in is how various places mm-hmm. and regions draw on traditional conceptions to confront problems associated with with modernity or capitalist modernity. Um, but of course, if you're dealing with an earlier period, I think the concept of modernity is still going to be at the background because that's where we live and that's what makes things relevant. But the way you would pose the question might be different. Like if you're going to do like a real intellectual history of, uh, you know, Dogen or something like that, uh, or Confucius. I mean, then you would have to look at their respective, I think the whole point of intellectual history is to try Mm -hmm. to look at the conditions for the possibility of the emergence of a certain type of historical thought in social processes or historical processes, which is why it's intellectual history, so that it brings sort of philosophy and history together.
0: So another way to put that might be to ask the question of why did a certain set of ideas not show up 10 years earlier, but only after a certain set of events had already occurred?
1: Yeah, I think that would be one way of putting it, I think, uh, to say, I mean, to put it negatively is a little more tricky. So so because, yeah. because it can Im- imply that certain ideas are supposed to develop if there's no hindrance. You know, like you have the famous debate in, in, in China about, you know, Joseph Needham and you know, why did science not take place in, in China at a certain time and uh, or, 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 you know, or if it did and so on. And, and, you know, there are people who have criticized that for saying, you know, that you're presupposing that science, other things being equal, science is supposed to emerge. So, so to ask the question in the negative is a little more tricky. But on the positive, you can say it's, it's events, but it may not just be events. It's maybe larger processes, you know, and I think that might that might also be part of
0: the issue. So just to run with this sort of what is intellectual history vein for a little longer, what would distinguish a, uh, I guess, a a not transnational intellectual history versus, like what makes a transnational versus not transnational intellectual history distinct from each other?
1: Um, Well, I guess most simply um, a national intellectual history would be confined within certain boundaries so that you have like Chinese intellectual history and you focus primarily on on Chinese scholars. While a transnational intellectual history at the very least will begin to look at and say, well, you can't really understand China if you don't really, you know, if you don't realize that so much of what's happening in modern China is, you know, is coming from Japan, including a lot of the words. So then you begin to start looking beyond a specific mm-hmm. nation and start looking. I mean, so this is a very sort of rudimentary level, but you're just start you're starting to look at the circulation of ideas, right? So that, you know, I don't know, you can take an idea of such as economy, for example, you know, jinji it only came in, it was a direct loan word from the Japanese Keizai, right? Because they had another word. And and of course, but then you you go and you begin to see it's much, it's a much larger issue than this because, you know, economy or Wirtschaft or whatever is coming from European languages, but it's coming through Japan. And so that then you begin to make, you, you start putting the whole, emergence of ideas and discourse in a larger, you know, movement that goes beyond the nation. So that would be a very basic understanding of what transnational intellectual history would be.
0: So depending on where, when we are in time, are there certain eras that you think it might be almost sort of forced or inappropriate to do a transnational study? Like, for example, in the second century BC, when there isn't as much or possibly as much communication between different parts of the world, does it make less sense then to do intellectual histories at that point uh, on those periods? Or is that sort of a, a false decision?
1: Well, do you mean intellectual history or do you mean transnational history? Uh, either or. Because intellectual history you could definitely do. For, I mean, I did there. There's no. There's no – I mean, take take the Han Dynasty thinker um, Dong Zhongshu. I mean, you could do a brilliant intellectual. I mean, there's a, not that not that much done, but there's some works that are quite good. On you know, you began to look at how you know his thought emerged in relation to the transformations of politics around you know two hundred B.C. or whatever, um, or one hundred B.C. or whatever. Because, but so so the, so intellectual history for sure. I mean, if you're going to do an intellectual history of Confucius, that's going to be even earlier but yet you could do it i mean the difficulty Mm -hmm. is it's very difficult to get sources at that point right so so that you begin to have to you 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 require a different set of skill sets you're going to have to do things like archaeology and stuff once you start going back that early but i think that it's it's in principle definitely possible the the question of transnational becomes much more tricky at that point because you have no you have no national so how can you talk about transnational um, so it becomes an issue. But on the, on the other hand, you can't talk about national mm-hmm. either. So, so in some sense, you know, we're, we're grafting those categories onto that period, and we have to begin to think of what we mean. Now, if we think about it loosely and say you know, we don't want to be confined with what we mean by China, I think that makes perfect sense, or, or Japan for that, for that matter, or, or even India, right? Because what we're dealing with at, say, you know, 200 B.C., is we're dealing with an empire, right? So that already goes the boundaries go much often beyond what we think of as nation, and it works in different ways. So, so there are ways in which you can bring in, you can you can do something transnational, but you have to be con- cognizant of the fact that what you're doing when you're doing transnational history of like the Han Dynasty is very different than what you're doing when you're doing um, transnational history of you know post-war Japan or something like that.
0: So then. If you're dealing with a point in time in which the nation state doesn't exist, it seems like you're de, you're sort of de facto doing sort of a comparative analysis, I, I, I guess, maybe. And I guess related to that, which I guess that's a yes or no question that you, you feel free to disagree with what I said or not. But related to that, do you think that basically transnational history makes comparative history sort of obsolete?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, these are all terms that are, that are difficult to, you know, and, 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 and they're done. It, the question is how they're done, I think. I mean, so, for example, if you want to take earlier uh, – so, so, I would like to first question the, 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 the first statement about, you know, when you're dealing with the pre-modern, you're actually dealing with comparative. Because if you're taking something like an empire – it's not necessarily comparative because you might still be talking about processes mm-hmm. of empire building and the way in which a certain type of thought is adequate to the empire as opposed to, you know, say the feudal period, right? So I think that's where you know you can think about you can think about that in in many different contexts. So that if you're going to talk about say, you know, or even the changes in in a particular social structure in relation to a thought. I mean, so so if you think about, say, Buddhism and Kamakura, Japan, right? Now, there, you're going to be talking not just comparatively, but you're going to be talking about a certain kind of social structure um, that and, and trying to understand why such a type of thought became popular at the time. Now, if you're going to deal with China, there's going to be much more that's going to be involved because if you're going to talk about, say, the Han Dynasty Empire and Dong Zhongshu, well, then you're going to be talking about ideas such as yin yang and so on and how they were used to deal with a, with, a, with a multi-ethnic empire, right? So that's where already it's not comparative, but it's going beyond what we usually think of as nations because some of right. those, the places ruled under such an empire might not be part of the nation we talk about now. Uh, this would especially be true when you come to the Tang dynasty uh, where the boundaries begin to be much broader, right? Mm-hmm. you know and i think that that's where you know and if you start going even further and then start talking about tribute system then you're even getting further right. because you're dealing then with a, with something like a system but it's not really like an international system that we think about right that's where now if you want to go so, so you can see how the problem can continue i mean so if you then go back to say the Zhou dynasty there are a lot of people right. who are talking about this now and um, i mean uh, in china mm-hmm. now because they're saying well at that time you had so many independent states right so it depends on the context. I think, you know, I think in certain places you may not have as much interaction. Uh, and, and uh, you know, but so, so, so if you're going to talk about, say, Buddhism in Japan, you might have less. I mean, because it's not an empire. You can talk about the Kamakura system as a system that exists within that space. But if you start talking about Buddhism, this is why intellectual history often lends itself to a kind of transnational study, because... The minute you start talking about Buddhism, you can't just limit yourself to the structure of of the Kamakura. You've got to start talking about how it came in. You talk about Dogen, you went to China, but but you go to China, you eventually you're led to India. And and so you begin to, you know, begin you begin to have to at least know something about that trajectory, right? So that's that's where you get. So that's where that's where that's sort of transnational history. Now comparative history you know, is also going to some, often be transnational, so that if you look at, say, if you're comparing, say, the late Qing and the, and the Meiji, I mean, so you can might, it could be comparative, sure. but comparative doesn't necessarily imply that you're looking at connections. So what's happened now is connected history has become very fashionable, right, so that it's often to look at the connections, um, but comparative history uh, doesn't necessarily talk about connection. I mean, by the very word, we're really talking about a comparison. Then, of course, we're left with the question of why the comparison is meaningful, and I think one can give reasons for that. Right?
0: right. So I guess then just to to think about your answer, about your, your comments on um Buddhism a little bit, does that mean sort of any history of Buddhism after a certain point almost has to be a transnational or even... A world history, and feel free to distinguish those two if you want. Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess it seems like certain topics, it, it seems like based how you're answering, certain topics are impossible without some sort of not bound to a certain space methodology.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think I think to, to, I mean I would um, tentatively agree to that. I mean, it's always. Uh, difficult, it's always complex to ask to, just to say non-not possible because a lot of it, this depends on the type of question that you're asking um, and, that, and the type of what the, the problem that the historian wants to solve. And so if the historian wants to solve a very particular question related to Buddhism in, say, uh, the Kamakura period or even the Edo period or the Meiji period, you know, it could be that the Indian and Chinese connections are not as central to their, to their understanding. But I would argue that they do need to know something about that. Because, And I think the, the, right. the benefit of knowing something about that is <clears throat> precisely that it lets them, their own findings and the significance of their own work can be put in a larger pr- perspective. And I think this is one of the things that, that I think we as historians need to do a little more, because when we, if we don't do that, our work um, becomes very confined to a ver- to a very small audience, right? Because it is uh, it's only the mm-hmm. people working in our field uh, that are going to be interested. Because we've not done made any effort to show how it would be relevant to something
0: broader, right? So no, that makes total sense. So I guess to to shift gears a little bit, um, I want to talk a little bit about capitalism and globalization and the category of the modern, which. Um, I think both you and I have invoked at this point. So um, I guess as an opening volley on that front, could you tell us what, when I ask you things about capitalism, what does capitalism mean to you? Just so listeners can have some definitional grounding for the next couple questions.
1: Well, that's a a long uh, question. I think um, because what capitalism means, uh, it's been defined in so many different ways. I would say that it is a um, the first thing to realize that it is not a thing but a process. I think that's one thing. Uh, the second would be that it is. I would I would um, as 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 a reader of Marx, I would be someone who would define that in relation to certain core concepts, such a, especially surplus value and the commodity form. So, but but mm-hmm. especially surplus value. So I, I I look at it as a as a process. That is, of course, associated with things like private property, the existence of a labor market, and so on. Um, But also, uh, perhaps more fundamentally, the existence of something like surplus value, which means that the capitalist uh, takes a portion of the of the worker's time as as the time that he works for his own. Surplus value, which eventually becomes profit.
0: Okay, so that that makes sense to me. So I guess, is there a distinction between when we say uh, for for the rest of this thread, should we should the listener presume that when we talk about modern, we mean the the capitalist era, the emergent like once we are firmly in a in a capitalist economy?
1: Uh, Not necessarily. I think that's a tricky question that we don't want to. Uh, I, I don't think I because because there are all these questions about early modernity and so on. Right. So. Um, so that's why I don't know if, you know, we want to say that so quickly. I think it's something to, to think about, which is why sometimes people use the term capitalist modernity and they say, but that's redundant because all modernity is capitalist. But but I'm not so sure. I mean, I think uh, I'm open. I mean, this is a tricky thing for me because I'm not I'm not an expert on the early modern period, so which is why it's hard for me to pass judgment mm. on that. But I can see certain reasons why one would want to distinguish the concept of modernity from capitalism, and there and, and there are a number of reasons even without the of, the question of early modernity, which I'll come back to in a in a moment. So you can take, for example, the whole socialist experience, right, from the Mao and so on. Now, okay. I would want to say that those are modern, but I don't think they're capitalist. So so from mm. that perspective itself, one would want to at least separate um, modernity from capitalism. Um, now you could say, but they're all part of global modernity. But then the problem becomes so. So you know what what, what that means, and how you can have a non if you have a non capitalist segment in a global modernity, then you've already presupposed that modernity and capitalism can be sep- capitalism can be separate. So to put things simply, I think the concept of modernity operates at a higher level of abstraction than the concept of capitalism, right. because we would want to say that capitalism implies modernity but not all modernities are capitalist so for example then then you can begin to start talking about the tokugawa you know there's there's a book i forget who is elizabeth berry yeah she has a she has a whole thing yeah right she has a whole thing on communication and so on and how you have you can have things like nation and so on so that you know without being being an expert on that period i don't oh, yeah. want to rule that out uh, That that you could have that you don't have capitalism but yet you have certain aspects of what we call modernity. I mean, so, so that modernity is, is it, it appears like it is operating at a higher level of abstraction so that you get something like market, you can have organization, but they don't come together in the same type of logic. So that's why I would say that you could, you could do that. I mean, you have similar studies in the Ming dynasty. I think the key, the key for me is to distinguish it from capitalism because once you start conflating it then all kinds of confusions uh, emerge if you don't do the conflation then maybe there's something to it i mean um, you know there might be it's it's possible to you know, I, the the key for me is when when i see such arguments is why is the person making the argument and what are they trying to do with it and it usually has some kind of contemporary connection right so that a lot of people were talking about you know, Edo period modernity, largely because they wanted to show how Japan could be different and, and how that still had effects. The same thing with Chinese China. You had right. Chinese early modernity was among a lot of Japanese Sinologists which were to show how the communist revolution happened. So that I think in that sense, you know, there might be something to it. But but I think it ha- one has to be careful.
0: Professor, we're talking about a lot of very big categories, modernity, capitalism at this point, And it seems... At various points in your answer, that implicitly part of modernity is the formation of the nation-state, and one of the things that transnational history and transnational scholarship in general has tried to do is to decenter the nation-state to reveal primarily just how artificial a category it is. That this idea of nation and nation and nationhood is something completely fabricated by um, governments and, and politicians and different intellectual thinkers over time. So my question specifically is, in our move to be transnational, can we simply cast the nation-state aside, or is there a risk to doing that as well?
1: Nation-state can't be tossed aside so easily because, um, you know, if we think about globalization and imperialism, it's not some— I mean, especially imperialism is something that that requires the nation-state fundamentally, and even global capitalism— uh, has never been able to expand without the nation-state uh, because it requires a whole, I guess, system, um, you know, including within the state laws and so on. So that um, I think it's mm-hmm. a mistake to mm-hmm. just to say, okay, we want to now get past the nation, and therefore we do connected histories.
0: So then just so think to run with the, the capitalism thread a, uh, a little bit, so some of your comments have, I think, fall pretty clearly into something that might be called the history of capitalism. But could you could you distinguish for us, so I know I've had my students many times get very confused about what the difference between a Marxist history and a history of capitalism is. Could you clarify what that distinction is for us?
1: Um, I think, uh, of course, this is also a complex question because there are many different types of Marxism. The issue, of course, is even because there are even more histories of capitalism. I mean, I think there, there are so many different people who are going to write a history of capitalism, but how they understand capitalism, um, you know, and uh, how they do that history is going to be very different from uh, if someone is a Marxist. Um, take, for example, Weber. Um, Weber is a historian of capitalism in some sense, but he's not a Marxist, right? So uh, one of the differences between him <clears throat> and, and, and a Marxist is perhaps um, the way in which he might see certain things existing before capitalism, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, uh, a a Marxist would say they're much more historically specific. Um, Of course, this is a complex issue because, you know, there's some people who say that, you know, inside every Marxist is a Weberian struggling to get out. And that is because if you make something extremely historically specific, it goes back to the early modernity question, um, because if you, if you say everything is historically specific, everything rationalization, everything is historically specific, then uh, it becomes very difficult to talk about anything pre-capitalist, because you, you're, you say you're not allowed to use those concepts. But I think the Marxist is going to be on the side of trying to stress the historical specificity of capitalism, but also the Marxist is someone who is interested in studying capitalism to overcome it. And I think that is perhaps one of the major differences. He's not just interested in in. A, it's not a very disinterested history of the emergence of capitalism, like, which is often. There are many histories of capitalism that are either value neutral or sort of celebrate the emergence of capitalism, but I think the Marxist is very interested in trying to see capitalism as a contradictory system of social domination, and uh, you know, often trying to bring out, you know, what those contradictions are, where it could lead. So there's a so there's really a presentist dimension to the Marxist uh, history, because it's very much Marxism is very much a project that is connected to the present.
0: Right. So I guess since you've been talking about Marxism as a specifically political sort of scholarship, is there any scholarship that is apolitical?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, it's difficult to say. It depends what you mean by apolitical. I think our academia in general has become very apolitical. Um, so that most work is going to be apolitical in some way, because, I mean, most of them are writing for, uh, we're, we're, and, and I would have to include myself, I mean, we're writing for our peers. We're supposed to publish in journals that mostly intellectuals read. So I think um, it is sort of, there is an apolitical, but I think, you know, to borrow a term from uh, someone who's actually here in Qinghua, Wang Hui, um, One of the points he makes is that there's a politics of depoliticization. And I think most apolitical scholarship participates in that politics. So that the so-called apolitical actually helps in reproducing the existing structures. And I think that's something that we need to
0: keep in mind. So does that, wouldn't that just mean, so if the current structure is capitalism, wouldn't that just mean that what people are calling apolitical is just capitalism and therefore is political?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not that they're calling it it's not that what they're calling apolitical is capital, but it's rather that they are sort of helping to reproduce the structures of capital without without explicitly wanting to do so. I mean, it's sort of that there's what 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 contemporary academia I think is often is, is happening to academia is that that when we get enclosed in our own walls, I mean, what happens is that we and this is the whole ivory tower discourse and so on, but. But I think that uh, one of the issues is precisely that we don't uh, we're we're not able to make a, a critical engagement with uh, not just capital but any kind of social movement that is going on outside, right? and I think that becomes the issue.
0: So then, is is what makes it apolitical in your view the failure to sort of point out why a social movement failed in and sort of for example, or is it the say some histories of the 60s one could possibly say are like sort of lamenting the failure as opposed to pointing out why the failure occurred like what what sorts of things where's the political f- fall down i guess is where i'm if you could give us an example you don't have to na- name anybody but for for example
1: i think it's difficult because i think so the 60s if you're doing a history of the 60s there's a better chance that you're going to be able to make, make a political kind of uh, argument because it's very connected to our uh-huh. present, right? Because you could argue that our own apolitical climate emerged out of a defeat of the 60s, um, right? Because the 60s was a period when you had much more uh, political engagement in, the, uh, in academia, right? Um, but I think that... Uh, and so then the question becomes, how do you deal with that? And this is where, when you've talked about failure, I mean, there's a whole... Um, you yeah, know, I, I just wrote a little essay called, called Leftist Melancholy, you know, and that's where you really you can talk about different ways in which the left has dealt with the failure of things like the socialist movement and, and all of these things around the world. Again, this becomes a kind of global uh, phenomenon where this retreat from politics accompanies a retreat from class and also uh, the defeat of labor movements around the world. Uh, the fall of socialism in various countries and so on so so what you have is global trajectories moving towards a kind of depoliticization to the extent that they, we feel that there's no alternative that's possible um, so the 60s if you deal with the 60s you can look at it as a missed opportunity you can do it it becomes it's very easy to politicize that i think what becomes much more difficult right. is if you're starting if you're working on you know the the, the edo period or you know even earlier how do I think the challenge is? Is how do we make that political, or and you know and can we? You know, and I think that's an issue. Or even even if you're gonna you know talk about you know the Meiji period, that again becomes an issue. But you know one can see how you know debates, Marxist debates in the 30s and 40s, were very political in some sense, and it was all about the Meiji. Of course, the Meiji was closer to them, um, but we might say the same thing. So the modern mm. period. The modern period maybe lends itself a little more easily to politicization in some way or the other. But I think um, an issue, I think, is sort of what you're struggling with in this podcast is, you know, how do you make this, these ideas uh, reach a larger audience? And that's a more difficult question.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. And I guess one of the things that, I, that I've been hearing a lot on podcasts, and this is not a judgmental statement, is one of the things that seems to be quite trendy is, regardless of what you're doing, politics sort of creeps in in some fashion, whether you're explicitly a political podcast or not. But I guess you've you've pointed to ways in which sort of politics can be difficult or problematic, depending on what you're studying. But ought there always be a politics in the scholarship? Is the scholarship more productive? Better might be a wrong word, but maybe more productive to a broader discussion if it has a very explicit politics that is inherent in the scholarship?
1: I mean, uh, a lot of this is going to depend on your taste. I mean, I would think so. <clears throat> but, but, you know, this may not be, um, it may not be the, the general judgment, I think. And, and one has to understand that when you, when you write in academia and so on, I mean, you're judged by your peers and so on, and they may not be that into politics depending on what field they're in and what kind of what they do. And, and, and so it, it, it's, it's not an easy question to, to answer. To say, well, would it be more productive? I think the question would there would that immediately come up is productive for whom, you know, in whose eyes? And maybe you know, and I don't want. I'm not. I don't know if I'm relativist about this, but I think I would say I would I would tend to say yes, um, but but then but qualify that because if it becomes if your history becomes purely politics, then then it's not very. It could not be very. It also has to be good history. I mean, I think. The someone I am working on now, Takeuchi Yoshimi, um, actually wrote something quite interesting about this in his book on Lushun, right? And one of the things he says, I mean, Lu Lushun is the famous Chinese writer, right? And he says many people were trying to say, recruit, you make, read him as a communist writer and so on and make him explicitly political. And what Takeuchi says is, no, 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 he's one of his, his political significance is precisely made possible by a certain distance he has from politics so that the <clears throat> the distance that literature has from politics enables it to be critical of contemporary politics and so that's why if politics subsumes i think and literature and why maybe one could say the same for history then it may cease to have that tension that would allow it to develop something critical so that that because i think a lot of what political politics re- requires is an imagination as well right because One of the things I think we're lacking now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is an imagination as to how we could do anything different from, you know, global capitalist modernity. And I think um, that imagination, the imagination of something different could come from other, you know, other periods as well, right? You know, periods that are not Mm -hmm. capitalist, you know, it might be very interesting to say, well, how how were they different, for example?
0: Right. So So one of those, so one of the fall downs that you're speaking about might be something like, the fact that in American politics the debate just seems to be more or less markets, not questioning whether or not markets are causing a problem, inherently.
1: inherently. Yeah, or even asking what the market is, and I and I and I discuss this a little in the um, leftist uh, melancholy um, essay because there's um, there's a book by Johanna Bachman which talks about markets in the name of socialism, and and so that also says you know what we think of the problem is the terms like markets. Have, have sort of become ready-mades. Uh, what they are are substitutes for capitalism. And so, uh, but markets have, have a history, and here's where, you know, a history of Japan and China and in India and so on are, is quite helpful because there were markets existing there much before capitalism. Uh, but, um, you know, that's, uh, but now what's happened is markets have become synonymous with capitalism. So that, that becomes an, uh, a prob- problematic.
0: Right? right, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, I guess just two more questions because we're – I don't know how much we want to tempt the Internet gods. So do you think that uh, transnational history or transnational intellectual history sort of has the potential to give us some of these new critical p- options that – these new political critical options that you've been uh, referencing? Or do you think that it's no better equipped than, any, than other types of scholarships do so?
1: Well, I mean I, I wouldn't want to – I think there are ways in which it could be better equipped to the extent that it's, it, it sort of looks beyond just the nation without overlooking the nation, um, so that it might be able to look at processes that, go, that, that are sort of global in reach, and what that might help is to think about how you could have a new globality, uh, which would be one of, the, one of the things we would try to do for, if we're trying to imagine a different future. Um, I think. One of the, the the challenges, but this would be for any type of history, not just uh, transnational um, history, is is that you know you're looking at the past, and yet you want to say something about the present and the future, and 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 I think that's been the the challenge for history um, always. I think so. So yeah. I would say, yeah, transnational history, sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm I, I wouldn't be someone who say, okay, now we're doing transnational history, we don't need any more national history because. Because you could have national histories that also do the, sem- the, the same kind of thing. But if you take, for example, a history of markets um, in, the, in the socialist period, you'll soon find that it's all mm. if a lot of it is transnational. You know, the Hungarians are reading, you know, whatever, Yugoslavians and so on and so on. And then, then some of them are looking at it as a kind of answer to third world problems. So, so that especially in the modern period, there are a lot of these issues. The issues are global, whether or not you do it you, you look at it in terms of uh, national or transnational history. So I think more than just the term transnational, it would be how you even look at your a national history if that's, all, if that's what you're
0: doing. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess as our final question, do you think there's anything about the current moment we're living in that demands a different sort of approach to politics and scholarship? Or do you think that in general the current methods that we've been using for intellectual history, transnational intellectual history, are already, you know, good enough, well-equipped to deal with the issues we're facing today?
1: Well, I mean, I think on this issue, um, it's hard for me to say because the current transnational intellectual history, I mean, there's so many different methodologies, it's hard to say. You know, I myself would make a plea for one type of methodology and, and, and I would stress... You know, if we're talking about the current moment, I think we have to realize, first of all, how do we historicize that moment, I think, is is the question. How did we get to be where we are? And uh, I think there, uh, some analysis of, of, of neoliberal capitalism is 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 definitely important. Now, once we make that claim, we realize that one of the things that is going to connect us to the past is precisely capitalism. So if we're going to talk about the modern period, Um, I think we have to think about the changes in capitalism and and then how those then became the condition for the possibility of certain forms of of discourse and thought. Right. So so that, you know, that would be where I would place uh, methodology, I think, to try and bring those issues out. And that would
0: be where I think Marxism could could play a role as well. All right, Professor, thank you so much for your comments. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy them very much. Listeners, this is the last of our trio of introductory episodes, and we're going to begin our proper segments uh, starting two weeks from now, also on Thursday. Our first segment is on the topic of political violence, and we're going to begin with an interview with Professor William Marati from the University of California, Los Angeles. You can check out some sources related to today's topic at our website, transasiapod.wordpress.com, and you can also find us on Twitter, at transasiapod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by University of Wisconsin-Madison's Department of History. And our podcast artwork is designed and created by Catherine Randall. See you next time, everyone.